Hi everyone. Tonight I'm going to talk about a book that is probably easily the most famous book in the world, and that is the Bible. Now why am I talking about the Bible? Well, I've wanted to do this for a long time, but the reason I have it is because I didn't want anyone to think that the insights that I received from the Bible would somehow be confused with the respect I have for it as a holy writ for both the Jewish and Christian traditions. So I'm not doing that. What I'm doing is I'm, I'm looking at the Bible as a great work of literature, which, you know, I don't care where you come from, this book is sort of the background of Western civilization. And if you don't know the Bible, well, you know, like, it's like when my son was little, and we were, were Buddhists, right? So, but I really felt it was important for him to understand the Bible and know all the stories. Because honestly, you, you really can't dig Western culture without knowing it. So I, I just feel it's very important for everyone to know. And the lessons I'm going to share with you uh, are going to come from my own uh, point of view. So this is my opinion, man. But I think that you'll find that regardless of whether you consider yourself religious or not, that there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that's very, very useful. So I just want to start with that caveat. So my intention is good, man. My intention is to kind of take these stories, lift them up through my own gaze, and hopefully you'll find something helpful in what I'm sharing. Now, what's the specific method I'm going to use? Well, I'm going to start by working through them using the background of our four directions uh, system of mindfulness. So in everything that we use within the Dragonfly Sangha, I'm going to sort of highlight aspects of that. And so when I talk about the Bible, I'm going to be using that methodology. The second thing is that I'm going to use a particular approach. So when I was a kid, uh, the Bible was front and center. And, you know, unlike a lot of people, maybe you have a Bible in their home, but they never break it open. Uh, the Bible was a constant sort of source of reading for me. In fact, when I was a very young boy, maybe only, I want to say around eight years old, seven or eight years old, I had memorized large sections of the Bible. In fact, at one time, I had memorized the entire Gospel of John. No, I can't do that anymore. But I was really into it. <laughs> And so when I'm coming at this, uh, my, the, the method I'm going to use is going to be interpreting it through not just the sort of lens of my own spiritual tradition, Buddhism, but I'm also going to be using a sort of framework that was sort of created by others. So my two favorite versions of the Bible uh, are the Schofield Bible and the Coverdale version. Not the Dave Coverdale version, if you're a White Snake fan, but the Coverdale version. And both of these uh, presentations, I think, are classic. Uh, so let me talk about the Coverdale version first. Uh, the Coverdale version goes way back, and it was really sort of set the framework for the way that the English church uh, used the Bible in its, its various ways and means, including the prayer book. And the Schofield Bible is really interesting to me because that was a Bible that was, was used, a reference Bible. It was the first reference Bible, I mean, since going way back to the you know, late medieval period, where 
there was a reference. So, you know, when you read the text, there was a, a reference at the bottom where you could read, you know, some, some cool things you maybe didn't know about the text. But Schofield was interesting in that he presented, and, and his first edition of it came out in like 1901, and it was right before the war, uh, First World War. And so Schofield believed that there, was, there were different dispensations in the history of the Bible. So going from the Hebrew Scriptures all through the, you know, the Christian Scriptures and the book of Revelation, that there were seven sort of distinct periods of dispensations where God was sort of dealing with people in different ways. Now another way to talk about this is the idea of covenants and that, that there were different covenants between God and humans at different periods in the Bible. So I'm going to use some of that too myself because I think it's helpful. Now what's interesting, most of the time in theology those dispensations or, or covenants are looked at in a way like, like this is what God is doing, something different. Almost like God's reacting to what the humans are doing, right? And, and that's one way to look at it. My way of looking at it is, what if we went the other direction? What if we said instead, that instead of it, this idea of a, a deity reacting to what the humans are doing, you know, those pesky bad humans, uh, what if it was rather something where the humans were having an ever-evolving understanding of the nature of existence and the nature of the universe and this relationship with what they called God. So that's the angle I'm taking. The angle I'm taking is not so much that God changed or that God was reacting to what was happening, but rather for me, it's more that this is the journey of the, of the human and, and the human opening up to greater and greater levels of understanding and consciousness. Well, that's how I'm doing it. <laughs> okay. Now, I'm only going to share, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to break down certain stories. Obviously, the Bible, you, good Lord, you could take, you know, a year, two years, three years to kind of go over all the stuff that's in there, maybe longer, maybe a lifetime. But what I want to do is I just want to highlight a couple of the stories that are big themes that people know well and give you my, uh, my thoughts on that. So one of the things about the Bible that's interesting, and we're going to get into the Hebrew Scriptures now, one of the things that's really cool about it is that this is sort of the mythology of the West. So every culture has its origin mythologies and stories, creation stories. And this is our story. So it, it's very, very influential. And it even influences science to a large degree, you know. Uh, even the way people talk about things like the beginning of the universe and things of that nature. You know, it's got this kind of flair that kind of, kind of finds its way in at different times. So for me, that's another reason to honor it very deeply, is that this is kind of our mythos. So even though I'm a Buddhist, I wasn't raised in the mythology of Japan or the mythology of India. I was raised in the mythos of Christianity and Judaism. So that's mine, man. So I, whatever I do as a Buddhist is going to come organically out of that experience. And I apologize if some people don't like that, but that's the reality. And that's the way I've always felt in my own sojourn as a teacher. I've wanted to make the Dharma something that was ours, not something where we had to, you know, try to pretend we were Tibetan or try to pretend we were, you know, South Asian. 
we're Americans and we're Westerners. And so here's the Dharma, man. And if the Dharma is universal, it's there, everywhere. Now, the other thing is I'm a psychologist. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I don't mean I'm a psychologist in the, you know, the clinical sense, you know, get your license at the, the state border. I am a psychologist in that I study psychology. That's the nature of the human mind. And I look at the different ways in which the world has done this, because we've always done it. And I'm gonna give you the best that I can in terms of my presentation as a, as a psychologist in a universal sense. Now, some of you may wonder, you know, in the advertisement we had for this, it's, it's readings with Reverend T, and where the Reverend T comes from, because, you know, I'm usually known as Sensei Tony. Well, Reverend T was, the title was given to me when I was writing a lot of stories for Lion's Roar, which is a big international Buddhist magazine, and they came up with the moniker, the Reverend T. So I always thought that was kind of cool, and that's why I'm using it for these new teachings that I'm offering. So the, f the first story I'm going to talk about is the Garden of Eden. Now one of the things that I've found in my readings is that not just in the Christian and Jewish versions but throughout the world is that these are stories about humanity. So these are stories about us and not only us in some collective sense but they're us in the sense of our own journey from the time we're little to the time we're adults. So I look at this also as a sort of a transitional sort of understanding of how we are. Now in, in the four direction system, one of the unique innovations that I brought was to take the basic object relations teaching that you find in Buddhism around the development of the ego. An object relations relationship just means like Here's me, there's that object, and how I perceive it and respond to it, or react to it, how it reacts to me. And what I'm really doing is I'm, I'm, we did the same thing in that with the five stages of development as we, we brought them into a larger perspective of human development in general. So I'm going to do that too. So here's the story, right? And again, I'm not going to read from the Bible. I'm just going to tell you the story and I would encourage you, if you haven't read the Bible, to read it. And I would, I would use the Schofield or Coverdale version. So the Garden of Eden is, is this sort of the network that takes place after there's some original origin stories. Now, I'm not going to get into really classic theological academia and talk about the two different versions of Genesis that are found there and were kind of morphed together. I'm just going to talk about it as a story. So what you have is you have this creator being or beings who from the earth bring this creature in, into reality, into life, to breathe life into this, this dust creature. And then there is uh, a female creature too. In one version, it sort of happens the same way as it did with the uh, male version. Other, other time, it's something that comes from the male. I'm just going to take it you know, for granted that you got these two human beings, and here they are. They're in this garden. Now, what does this represent? Well, for me, what this represents is kind of the way we all are when we're very, very young. Uh, we're innocent. What does innocent mean? 
Well, usually innocent is, when we say someone is kind of innocent, we mean they're kind of naive, that they don't know things about the world. But I don't really think of it that way. When I think of innocence, I, I really think of it as something where a person just doesn't have the ability to integrate what's happening to them. And so as we, as we grow, as we evolve as an individual, we learn more and more to hopefully integrate our experiences. And sometimes, if they're traumatic experiences, sometimes we don't know how to integrate them. And then they get kind of stuck away back there in the shadows. But they're still affecting us. So for me, the story of Adam and Eve is the story of consciousness. And so early as consciousness, just like when we're really little, there's no self kind of awareness. You know, one of the glorious things about children is they're not sort of looking at themselves. They're really looking at the world and they're really absorbing everything that's happening around them, you know, and they're playing and they don't care how they look. They don't look in a mirror and start to compare themselves to other, and they'll run around naked. They don't care. <laughs> and there's something incredible about that, that they don't have that kind of self-examination thing going on. And for me, without getting into any long details about the snake or getting into details about the fruit, I think it's kind of cool, the idea that maybe it was an apple because as the human eye evolved, it seems like red was a very important color. And red meant food and red meant sex. And so, you know, it's very likely that it was a red fruit. But for me, what's most important is the idea that this represents this stage. And usually for humans, it happens around when we're eight or nine. That where we start to have, I call it the Santa Claus syndrome. We just got our tree today. We went out and cut it down and brought it in. So we got Sir Scotty there. And for me, I call this the Christmas syndrome, right? So when kids are real little, if you practice Christmas, which I hardly recommend, they, they, uh, they really believe everything. There's like this magical period that they go through where they really believe it. Like when you tell them that Santa's coming down the chimney, man, Santa's coming down the chimney. They believe that as much as you said, look, uh, the mailman's out there. Uh, and for that time, it's magical. So I look at the garden when Adam and Eve, you know, in the story, that they're innocent and they're magical, man. And then somebody comes along. So it's just like Santa Claus, right? So when kids are little, they're taught about Santa Claus, they believe in Santa Claus. It's glorious, glorious, right? You put out the cookies and the milk, you, you do the whole thing. And we did it big in our, our family. We did it, we do it, we always will do it really big. And then kids get to be around eight or nine and they start to question things, right? On their own, they're sort of starting to question things. Now here's my own take, right? Everybody gets down on Eve. But the fact of the matter is, one of the things we know about the human brain is that females tend to get their wiring done sooner than males. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's some evolutionary efficiency thing, <laughs> but they do. And even the complete wiring that takes place sort of happens in the 20s, happens to women first. So maybe she was just the first person to start to question these things. And so she represents for me that stage of eight or nine years of age where we start to think, hmm, how the heck does Santa do that? How does he get gifts to everyone? 
how's he getting into our place? Uh, this fireplace doesn't have a chimney. So what's going on? So that's how I look at Eve, you know? And then she talks to Adam about it. So imagine two kids in a schoolyard, and the one kid really believes in Santa Claus, and the other kid's a little bit older. Now, the older kid, to me, represents the serpent. Eh, somebody that's been around, somebody who's maybe 10 or 12. They still wish they believed in Santa Claus, but now they're, an ad- they're a big, big, big person. So what do they say to the little kid? Uh, you're a baby. You believe in Santa Claus? What? You're just, you're, that's stupid. And that's how I look at the serpent. Service just, just represents that reality that we come into contact with. We have our own doubts. We're starting to question things. And then we have someone who comes along and then humiliates us for believing anything that we did believe in. And that's how I look at it. And so what happens in the garden is that they're brought into the painful awareness. The painful awareness that Santa may not be literally true. And this changes things, man. It really does. And it's hard. And for me, the story of the garden, it's about the reality. And here's the underline. Here's the takeaway. Consciousness is freaking painful. To be conscious being hurts. And so this is the story of that. This is how, this story represents what each one of us goes through when we realize that being a conscious being is painful. And we go through lots of iterations. You know, the one is, you know, the bliss of no longer, you know, being self-aware. The bliss of, uh, the, of ignorance, you might say. And now we're aware and now we start comparing. It's now we start looking and contrasting and we start competing with others. And man, we just lose that, that innocence in many ways. One of the things I dug about the Buddhist story was that, you know, we're celebrating the great Feast of Enlightenment here in a few weeks. Is that, you know, when he was confused about what to do and he tried everything he could think of to find the answer to suffering, he remembered as a child sitting under, I think it was an apple tree, and watching his father do the ceremonial plowing of the fields. And it was under that tree when he was a kid where everything just felt really cool, man. Everything was one. And he thought, well, maybe that's what I'll do. Maybe I'll just sit under this tree like I did when I was a kid. And of course, that's how his awakening began. So I think that what the story tells us is that consciousness is really painful and that we can't avoid that. There's no way that we can get rid of the pain. Life hurts. And here's the lesson. It's a trade-off. In other words, if you want to have certain things in life, you have to trade off for others. There's no perfect panacea. That's the other lesson for me of the garden. There's no perfection. You can't go back. Because that is not, that's not real anymore. It's like an adult pretending they're a child again. Can't do it. You know too much. So for me, that story highlights the reality that life is, is 
is full of pain and hurt, but that's part of the trade-off of being alive, the trade-off of being conscious. There are people that I have loved very deeply in my life, and those people are no longer physically with me. Now, I think they're still with me in spirit, in my heart and mind. And in some sense, they are still alive and always have been and always will be. But they're not here physically. And so I can't touch them. I, 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 I can't hear them the same way anymore. And I'll tell you what, it's so painful to lose people that you love. But boy, I would never trade that love to not have that pain. In fact, I was saying this to some of my students the other night. I don't want anybody to take away my pain. My pain is what makes me me. It's what makes me human. It's what makes, it, makes you you. And even if somebody come up and say, oh, I can just take away all those bad memories, I can take away all your pain, I'd say no thanks. Because that's the trade-off in life. There is nothing perfect. You know, you're going to have people from different philosophical and political systems tell you there's some kind of panacea in the sky where everything will be perfect, everything will be fair. It's BS. Life is painful and it hurts, but the trade-off is consciousness, is love, is joy, is happiness. Now, the, the, the Buddhist interjection here is that suffering is not the same as pain. Suffering is the stories we create about the pain. Suffering is the story created by the resistance to the pain. And so that's why I practice the Dharma. Because for me, it's not about trying to remove the pain of life, but freeing myself from the suffering that's attached to the pain and is not necessary. And we don't need it. So that's the story of the garden. The next story I want to do is the story of Cain and Abel. So these are the kids, the, the two sons of Adam and Eve. And I'm not going to get into where did they find their wives, you know, was it incestuous, was it, you know, <laughs> all these sort of things. The Schofield Bible was kind of cool in that it, it tried to create a gap, you know, in the literal reading of the Bible and also kind of give room for millions of years of evolution and dinosaurs and things like that. So it, it does another similar thing like this, uh, at least that was my input from it, is that, you know, well, maybe the story of Adam and Eve is about these humans, but there were other humans and other creatures out there, and this is where they came from. None of that's important to me. It's a story. It's a very important story. So, so what does it represent? Well, for me, when I look at that story and I read about it, it's kind of like, well, you know, there's lots of things you could talk about. I mean, on the one hand, Abel seems to represent the hunter-gatherer. And Cain, in some sense, seems to represent the agricultural uh, sort of unfolding of humanity. And maybe that's what they're really about. Maybe they're about the conflicts that happen between those two groups as you know, the world changed and humans you know, evolved. Uh, and maybe that's what it's about. But as you know the story, right? So they're to make an offering to God. And Abel 
makes an offering to God that includes the slaughter of an animal. So it, in, it includes bloodletting and life for life. And Cain's, on the other hand, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't offer this. He offers fruits and vegetables. And so, like I say, you know, might be this <laughs> conflict between the hunter-gatherers and the farmers. But he offers this. Now, what's interesting is, is that God, in this example, rejects Cain's offering. And, of course, you know, that pisses Cain off. So, you know the story, he kills Abel. He murders him. But for me, it was always like, well, why is that? Why would this be the way that, why would God reject Cain's offering? Certainly, I think Cain would be more popular today, you know, where everybody's kind of into veganism and vegetarianism and all that sort of thing. And Abel sort of re represents, you know, the, <laughs> the red-blooded, you know, uh, beef eaters. And why did God reject Abel? So I don't know the answer to that. But again, if, if you remember what I said at the beginning, I'm looking at this as not that God changes, but that the human understanding changes. And here's what I think it comes down to. Cain rejected the circle of life. Cain rejected the natural order of life. That life feeds on life. Now why is that important? And of course Abel's represented that reality. You know why I think it's important? Because one is a rejection of reality. One is a rejection of how things really are. And it's just like that struggle we have as children where we're, you know, moving out of that magic period and now we're into this reality and it's not as much fun. And there's more responsibilities, there's school, there's all kinds of things that come into play. And I think there's always a longing for us to reject reality. Because we think that reality somehow is the problem. And so we're going to pretend like it doesn't happen that way. And I think that's what this symbolizes. It symbolizes that, that if you reject reality, it causes all kinds of neurosis. And, and those neurosis can lead to all kinds of unfortunate actions. And so what this story about for me is embracing the circle of life, honoring that circle of life, and not trying to hide from it, evade it, or pretend it doesn't exist. Because here's the thing. Reality is always going to be your best friend. Even when that reality sucks, <laughs> it's going to be your best friend because you know why? It tells you what you need to do next. There's no more fantasy. There's no more pretending. Now you know. And so for me, that's the big takeaway in the Cain and Abel story. We cannot reject this circle or cycle of life. We cannot reject reality. Because whatever we replace it with, it's just going to create suffering. So there you go. So that ends tonight's talk. So the story, the big takeaway for Adam and Eve in the garden is consciousness is painful, man. Life is a trade-off. And suffering is not necessary. And Cain and Abel represent 
that reality, as hard as it is, is still our best friend because it always will teach us and show us what we need to do. And that rejecting that reality will just lead to more suffering. So there you go. So that's our, our first entry into the Bible. So I hope you found it helpful and useful. And uh, please feel free to email me uh, with your, your comments. And uh, have a good night.